to be with you brothers this morning, fathers in the faith. Bow with me for a moment of prayer. Almighty and everlasting God, we do well always and everywhere to give you thanks and praise to Jesus Christ our Lord, and we do that this morning. We thank you for the gift that you have given us in your Son and expressed to us through your word. We ask, Almighty Father, that you would grant us the grace to give heed to your word. I ask for the grace that I need to bring your word to your people in a manner which is pleasing to you and beneficial to them, my brothers and fathers in the faith. We ask this in the majestic name of Jesus Christ, the great and final word. Amen. I once saw an espionage movie. I can't really recollect the title of it. I believe it was one of those Tom Clancy novels that had been remade into a movie. I really don't know because I've never read any of Mr. Clancy's prose. But it's a basic espionage movie. There's good guys and there's bad guys. Of course, the good guys are Americans. At least one or two of the bad guys were Colombian drug lords. But two of the really bad guys also were Americans. They were American operatives within the confines of one of those intelligence agencies. And to the one bad guy who was an American, the bad American guy, it was unacceptable not to lie for the cause of a greater good. It was acceptable to do all manner of nefarious things to achieve the country's objectives. Now, to the good guy, it was a Tom Clancy novel, Jack Ryan, Dr. Jack Ryan. To Dr. Jack Ryan, it's absolutely unacceptable to lie under any occasion. And in this semi-dramatic scene near the end of the movie, Mr. Ryan approaches his inter-office rival with this proof that he's been lying to Congress and things of that nature and says, I've got you, something to that effect. And the bad guy says, you're such a Boy Scout. You're such a Boy Scout. You see everything in black and white. Gray, Jack, the world is gray. We would like the world to be gray, wouldn't we? At least in the realm of Christianity and morals. We would like to also say or profess that we see the world in black and white as Presbyters, but we know that we don't. We hedge our bets, we accommodate sin in our life, and we make excuses and explanations for our sins, but the Apostle John is one of those extremely annoying black and white type of fellows. And he makes it very clear that sin is absolutely and utterly unacceptable in the Christian life. Sin is unacceptable to our Christian lives. And we see this uh, clearly um, in 1 John 3, verses 4 through 10. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If not, just give careful attention to God's Word. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. The devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. 
Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Well, as I said, the Apostle John is one of those annoying black and white types, and I'd like to ask you if he's annoying you already. In your mind, are sin and the Christian life mutually exclusive? Do you utterly hate sin? Do you want to eradicate it from your life, annihilate it? Do you want to see it out of your family's lives, out of the churches that you serve? I hope so. Because that's God's final objective, for sin to be eradicated. In the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no sin. And in the Lord's Prayer, we say, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our brother in his prayer talked about our tasks. What's our main task? Really, today. Prove a bunch of reports? Of course we have to do things. Grill a candidate for the ministry? Of course we. At least most of us are looking forward to that. (laughs) But no. Our main task, our primary task, is to mortify sin. To kill the sin that is in us, that resides in us. But the problem is, we welcome sin into our homes. Because sin already lives there in our hearts. And that's where all of our problems arise. All of the problems that any of us ever encounter as presbyters, as husbands, fathers, whatever, is a result of sin. Maybe not our particular sin, maybe not another person's particular sin, but just because we live in a sinful, fallen world among sinful, fallen persons. And then you add our personal sin and our pastoral sin into the mix, you have a, a horrible and dangerous combination. Those of you who are teaching elders know what it's like to battle this enemy. When you see someone intentionally ruin their life after you've told them countless times, if you do this, it will hurt. And then they come back and they say, you know what? It did hurt. But I'm going to do it again. I don't know why, but I'm going to do it again. And they do it. And they return to your office or your study, if you like to call it a study, and they say, it hurt even worse the second time. And sadly, some of us do it a third and fourth time and lay waste to our entire lives. Our catechism gives us a great definition of sin. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And the Westminster formularies came up with that because that's how God defines sin. What does John say? Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness and Sin is lawlessness. This is an easy definition anybody can understand. It's very unfashionable, but we do need to think of sin as a crime. Sin is a crime in the commonwealth of Christ. It's a crime that is brought to Christ's court. And that's even more unfashionable in our day. And it's sadly growing even more and more unfashionable in reform circles to talk about the judicial aspect of God. Talk about the law of God. That has always been one of our little niches that we were able to talk about. You see, grace is something we love. At least I do. But grace is only needed 
when someone's already been found guilty in court. You don't need grace if you haven't been convicted of a crime. You don't need mercy or compassion. They're not abstract categories. They are a response to a crime. And if sin is lawlessness, then we are all spiritual criminals. That is the primary reason why sin is unacceptable in our Christian lives. Long before President Kennedy was assassinated and left that deep wound in our country, we know that Cain killed Abel. Thou shalt not murder. More literally, thou shalt not do any unlawful killing. I'm currently preaching through the Sermon on the Mount at Middlesex. I actually was looking forward to it until I actually started to dig into it and I realized, oh, I forgot how brutal these three chapters are. How terrifying the idea that murder is just saying something nasty to your brother. The idea that adultery is merely looking lustfully at a woman or a man. That's just terrifying in its implications. That God can actually see and penetrate into our very hearts. That he doesn't have to uh, present really any external evidence because the evidence is right there for him to behold. We are never off camera. Sin is unacceptable because it is a crime against God. Do you like the law of God? Oh, how lovest thy law? Is that how the old hymn goes? I hope you do. That has always been one of our niches too, the law of God. Reformed people have been able to talk about the three uses of the law. You don't hear that language too much anymore, even in our circles. You don't expect to hear it from Pentecostals and brothers of that ilk, but you do expect to hear it in Reformed circles. Don't hear it too much. Not that much. We need to emphasize the law of God because if we don't emphasize the law of God, then we can't really get to the message of grace. Our people, the people that we shelter and protect and serve, need to understand that criminal acts precede God's grace and compassion and mercy. If all they do is hear about how much God loves them, which is the truth, then they'll miss the greater half of the equation. And what really happens when we don't press God's judicial law upon our people, we can't really bring them to the cross. Because the cross is God's execution of his law. That is where law and mercy converge. And I hope that we all want to bring the cross and the Christ on the cross to our people. And I am particularly speaking to preaching elders who will preach tomorrow. That the cross and what God did at that cross is utterly essential and central to our faith. And we all say that, but I fear that sometimes we just, well, frankly, sometimes we don't even get there. We preach moralism, we preach be good boyism, and our people walk out thinking, oh, I'm not a good boy, I'm not a good girl, and I, I didn't match up. We have to bring the cross and the Christ to them in its and in his full effect. But we can't really get that full effect unless we point out the reality and horrific nature of sin and the fact that sin is a crime. I don't know about you, but I like traffic lights. Usually, I thought I was going to get... In downtown Butler, it's a trick. If you catch 
if you catch the first red light, there's a coming in from Middlesex, there's a possibility you're going to catch a series of them. They don't seem to be staggered at the pace that I would like. Today I only caught one, and then it was green all the way through, and then one red light at the end. I thought, okay, this is good. But where would we be without traffic lights? In the world of chaos, where would we be without any uh, property laws? And many of us probably think that our civil government, our civil magistrate is way out of control and has an incredible amount of uh, abuse. That well may be. And that's really not the issue. The issue is we need law. Law brings order to chaos. And God's law brings order to his people. It's the fence lines that show us where we can drive and where we can't, where we can walk and where if we transgress that law, where we're going off the rails. So John gives us a good definition of sin, and he also gives us his, the origin of sin in the first part of verse 8. He who sins is of the devil. The devil has sinned from the beginning. Satan really is the original outlaw, and he'd like us to join us in his outlaw ways. Now, the arts community has a tendency to romanticize the outlaw life, but there really is nothing romantic or attractive or appealing or glamorous about living as an outlaw in God's kingdom. I hope there isn't. Criminals enjoy crime. I used to work in the criminal justice system. They enjoy it until they get caught. I once worked with a young man who uh, had an unusual crime. In a drunken stupor, he broke into a mannequin factory. Hmm. Broke into a mannequin factory and got caught. It happened to have been his second... I think it was a high court misdemeanor, so he had to go into the community corrections program in the state of Michigan. I remember sitting in my office thinking, okay, what exactly was your point here, champ? Is there a big market for stolen mannequins? Is there? Or is this for a personal pleasure? And he said, I can't even remember any of the night. And I said, well, we have a, a record here, snapshots, the whole thing. You're caught. And he said, I'm begging you, don't let anybody know that's why I'm in here. Tell them I'm in here for some drug beef. <laughs> I said, why? He said, well, it's embarrassing. I have a reputation to uphold. We laugh. That's funny. He was an outlaw. He wanted his fellow outlaws to have respect for him. Getting lost in a mannequin factory isn't glamorous. Sin isn't glamorous, but we think it is very often. And a lot of our young people think it's glamorous. No matter how much we shelter them from Hollywood or New York or San Francisco, they will find it. I don't have television in my house. We have Netflix, and my children have to earn over one DVD streaming through the week. They get one if they earn it through a system of respects and disrespects. I shelter them, and my son's now almost 12. He says, you want to shelter me? I says, yes, I do. I do. He's starting to chafe at that a little bit. And they go to a Christian school. You know what? They still get stuff that I don't want them to get. Sin is everywhere. If you just open your nostrils, you can almost smell it as you're walking down the street. You can feel it in this room. Feel it here. I'm not feeling anything from any of you but love right now, but 
we know that sin is in our hearts. And we need to protect God's people from it and make sin as unattractive as it possibly is. If we could really see sin for even a moment for how God really sees it, we would run from it for our dear lives. We've all sinned. and James tells us we all stumble in many ways. Again, now speaking to primarily you preaching pastors, preaching elders, he who does not sin with tongue is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body. That's why he reminds us, James does, don't dare to be a teacher. When we bring God's word to people, we need to be very careful. Literally, with every syllable we say, God's keeping track of every single word. Really? What an awful God. Oh, what does Jesus say? Matthew 12, every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for in the day of judgment. For by your words you shall be justified, and words you shall be condemned. Careless words, gentlemen. Not angry words. Careless words, not bitter words. Careless words, not ill-thought-out words. Not malicious words. Just careless words. Most of us, myself included, have probably already broken that law. Now, we need to understand, obviously, and I think most of us know, that John is not talking about perfectionism here. How do we know that? This is talking about a habitual lifestyle of sin. How do we know that? Well, what happens earlier in the book? He gives us that great verse, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then earlier in the book, he also says, if someone, this is a paraphrase here, if someone claims that he has no sin, he does not know God. So, John is not talking about perfectionism here. He wouldn't give us the provision for forgiveness of sin if he wasn't aware that we were already going to sin. This is talking about an outlaw lifestyle. We know that we love sin when we do it, but are we growing in our hatred of it? Progressive sanctification. You don't hear that phrase too often anymore either. Are we progressing in our sanctification? The battle in our circles right now is over justification, and rightfully so. But sanctification is the other side of the coin, and it is progressive. We have something to do. We have a great deal to do with our sanctification. Nothing at all to do with our justification. Justification is God's forensic declaration of our pardon, not our innocence, our pardon, because of Christ's imputed righteousness, but with your sanctification, you have something to do there. To work, to put to death, to annihilate, to eradicate the sin and the evil in our lives. And as elders, ruling or preaching elders, we have the great honor of bringing that message to God's people and sheltering them from the harmful effects of sin. But you see, if, we, if sin is glamorized or if we make light of it, we can't protect them. Children these days like to play, well, usually boys like to play violent video games. And one boy told me, but it's not real blood. You shoot them and it's, the color is like a rainbow. And I told the parent, that's even more dangerous than showing them real blood because this is desensitizing them to the real nature of violence. They get to see rainbow blood, reading rainbow blood as opposed to real violence. Let them see what violence really looks like and they won't want anything to do with it, hopefully. Sin is ugly. Sin is disgusting. And it is unacceptable in our Christian life. 
It's also unacceptable because it's just in, incompatible with our Christian life. Look at verse 5 and the rest of verse 8. And you know that he, that's Christ, was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. This is the key part of the text. In him, that's in Christ, there is no sin. This is why Jesus came into the world. This is who he is. This is his passport. This is his identity as a man. In him there is no sin. And if we call ourselves Christians, if we claim that we are in Christ and that in Christ there is no sin, then sin really has no place at our table either. It's incompatible with who we are. We would find it odd, wouldn't we, if a professing evil person, and maybe you've met people like that, maybe, well, hopefully you haven't, I have, met people who actually, truly love evil. It's odd when they do something good. It's odd. We wouldn't expect it from them. The same holds true for us. The world should find it odd when you and I slip. We should find it odd when we slip. Our children should find it conspicuous when we slip. And even there, I'm I'm, I'm lightening it, aren't I? I slip. Sin isn't a slip. We don't slip into sin. Sometimes we do, but very often we walk right into it, knowing full well what we're doing. The point is, not will we do it, but is it unacceptable to us? Is it our lifestyle or is it an oddity in our lifestyle? Is it an aberration or is it our daily course of life? Again, I encourage people to confess their sins sometimes on an hourly basis. I said, if you were to just stop at the top of the hour and review your life for an hour, you'll find a reason to confess your sins. It's not what John is talking about here. We're talking about habitual, heinous sin. We don't know exactly what the heresy John was combating. Probably a number of things, nothing, probably nothing very novel, but certainly a level of antinomianism, where they just thought that they could do anything they wanted, which, sadly, that type of thinking is still with us today, even in the church. Well, I'm a Christian. I'm saved by grace. I'm justified. I have my fire insurance. Well, maybe, maybe not. I think we really have to start pressing on people that sanctification, again, has nothing to do with justification, but it's the proof of our justification. It's the proof of our justification. Now, people can fake it. We can't see into their hearts. Only Christ could see into their hearts. And it must have been very unnerving to be in the presence of Christ. Picture yourself being a Pharisee and Christ being able to see right through your charade. That must have been brutally unnerving. Well, as I told my congregation uh, last week, there's, there's an inner Pharisee in all of us. And Christ can see right through that charade. Right through that charade. And those of us who are called to be elders are held to a much, much higher standard. The sadness of it is that all of this self-destruction is really unnecessary. Because Christ has given us a spirit. And his spirit is an actual person. I think many of us Christians really are almost Unitarian. Really. Or at least Binitarian, if I pronounce that right. 
you know, Reformed people, we don't talk about the Spirit too much. We don't want to appear as Pentecostals now. You know? We don't want to appear as snake handlers. You know? we, don't want, we don't want to sweat during worship. The only time we Reformed Presbyterians really like to sweat is if we're getting ready to burn it into the little state. That's, that's when we're going to sweat. But when we're in worship, we don't, we don't, we don't want to sweat. But it's okay. It's perfectly fine. But the Spirit is real. He is real, and he is given to us as a gift to burn out the sin in our lives. And I wonder if we, if we actually take advantage of the gift, that particular gift. Are we examining our lives in light of the fruit of the Spirit? Are we pointing out to our people, hey, guess what? Love is a requirement for you. Not love in the 60s, hippies type of sense, but actual love. You cannot hate that person on the other side of the church. It's against the rules. If you do, you need to examine whether you are actually in the faith. It's okay to disagree. But to hate? No, that's not okay. And our words betray us. Those of you who are preaching elders and you talk to people all day, you, the things that come out of parishioners' mouths, sometimes you're stunned, aren't you? Really? You, you think that? That's what you think of her? You've thought that for 40 years? That's been bubbling in you for that long? And some people are shocked when they realize that that's disallowed. I kind of thought it was wrong, but you're telling me that Christ hates that? Yes, he does. And we all stumble in many ways. It's easy for us here in this room, isn't it, to talk about Hollywood or New York or Lawrenceville, Georgia in a disparaging way. Talk about personages in St. Louis in a disparaging way or Jackson, Mississippi or I'll pick any place where there's another. Those are the two big seminaries, right? Jackson, St. Louis, Philadelphia. Philadelphia, forgot about that. Escondido. You can nail people in those places. There's a difference between disagreeing with someone's doctrine and imputing their person big difference. We need to be very careful when we're talking about someone's doctrine and their person. The word heretic should be very carefully used. Just because someone disagrees with you on a point of doctrine doesn't make them a heretic. Now, it does depend on the doctrine. But that term heresy, at least for me, is reserved for a special class of person. And I'd like to think that teaching elders in the Presbyterian Church of America are not heretics. They might have systemic disorders, but not heresies. None of us are perfect in our doctrine. There's going to be Pentecostals and Baptists in heaven. Now, I like to joke around and say, you know what, we're all going to be Reformed Presbyterians in, in heaven. And by the way, all of you someday, like me, will be post-millennial. It will happen. Just a little just a little levity there. Christ is going to win. You think he's powerful enough? He came to what? Destroy the works of the devil. He came to destroy them. Not to tolerate them. Not to get by with them. The wheat and the tares. I'm going to go off on a tangent here. Be careful. In a good, healthy farm, there's more wheat than weeds. Parable of the mustard seed. Go home and just check out Matthew 13 and and pray to God, and maybe he will see fit to um, show you that. 
Someone asked me one time oh, what one of my regular practices was as a pastor. So I have a number of them. One of them that's not very pleasant is to find myself sometime between 1 and 3 in the morning in a darkened room when everybody sane is asleep and worrying about the evil in the world. Worrying about the evil in my particular congregation, in my family's life, in my own life, and, and fretting over the sin that I see and experience and begging God to rid us of it. It's one of the honors of being a pastor that you get to do that. To worry, to fret, to cry and weep over the ravages of sin. Sin is incompatible with your life, brothers. It's a mudslide. takes you away. But if Christ has grabbed you and yanked you from that mudslide, why would you want to go back into it? The dog returns to the vomit, so the fool returns to his folly. Do we want to be considered fools? Or do we want to be considered courageous? Putting sin to death is hard work. I recently had someone tell me, I don't want to make this Christian commitment unless I really know it's real. And I said, you're ready for this. I've been praying for over two years that your life would fall apart. And it was at that point. He said, what did you just say? I said, I wasn't praying particularly for the heart palpitations. I wasn't praying for that particularly. But this is a good sign that you're nervous about this encounter with the living God. It's good that you understand that this is a lifelong commitment, that this has ramifications for eternity. It's good that you know that. And he did make the commitment. And I said, that was easy. The rest is going to be hard. You now have 45 years of baggage to put behind you. I told him, I said, I came to Christ at like 21. And I found that I had a ton of baggage. I can't imagine an extra 24 years of it. It's going to be difficult for you to leave that baggage. Wait, by the way, here's three or four things that have to go ASAP. There, you have to go. These are big ones and they've got to go. Do we have the courage to face up to what this passage tells us? That it's a hard truth? Do we have the courage to fight sin in our day and age when sin is just looked at as a personality quirk or a personality disorder? I encourage you to run to Christ. I know that sounds very glib. Hebrews 2, Hebrews 4, Hebrews 7. He's your great high priest. He was tempted like you are, yet without sin. And he was tempted far beyond what you and I will ever dream of being tempted. We give in to our temptations relatively quickly. He never gave in for a single moment. As I'm going through the Sermon on the Mount, I, God's Spirit has rammed at home. I thought, he never once slipped with an unnecessary or an unnecessarily angry word. Not for, a, not for a moment. Not for one split second did he ever commit 
spiritual unseen adultery. Never, never once. What must it have been like to have been him? We fret, don't we? I hope some of you pastors at least have, some, maybe hopefully you're not doing it between 1 and 3 a.m. But you know what it's like to worry and to fret about sin. Imagine being Christ. Now we see sin and fret about it, but sin has filmed over our eyes. He was able to see sin progressively as he grew in all of its ugliness. As a five-year-old, he must have been able to see the sin in his mother and father and his brothers. And at 12, he must have been, even though the text doesn't tell us, been wondering, what is wrong with these rabbis? Don't they get it? The passage in the temple. Don't they get this passage? And there must have been a point in his progressive growth when he was reading what we call Isaiah 52 or 53 and it dawned on him, oh, that's me? That's, that's my future. My father's going to crush me. He's going to execute me for these people. For us. Brothers, he saved you from all of that. And I encourage you to run to him because these texts and texts like it force us to our knees when we realize that God hates sin. <clears throat> sin is unacceptable to our Christian lives. And I beg of you, run to Christ because only in him is there no sin. Would you pray with me for a moment?